My name is Donna Gaines, and I do happen to be the pastor's wife here. Um, and I am delighted to be able to talk with you about biblical womanhood and what it means to be a woman who honors and reveres the Word of God. We know that the Bible tells us in the beginning God created man and woman, and he created us in his image. Part of what it means to be created in the image of God is that we are made to be relational. So we know from the very beginning each of us is unique, but also we have inestimable worth. That means you can't put a price tag on your life, okay? Because you have been created in the image of God, and he has a very specific purpose and plan for your life. And so I want us to look at together, you should have a handout with all the notes on it, about what it means to be a biblical woman. So we know that we've all been created in God's image, and in the Old Testament, we the only office limited to men was the office of priest or Levite, and in the New Testament, the only office that was limited to men was the office of pastor or elder. They were the leaders. So what we know from that is God created us in his image equal as male and female, and yet with different roles within the home, within church. But outside of that, men and women are basically equal. In the church, you would not have the role, if you believe according to the word of God, you would have more of a complementarian, which we'll get into that in a moment, viewpoint, which means we're equal and yet we complement one another in the roles that God has given us. I would not aspire to be a pastor in a church because we don't see that office in the Bible, Old Testament or New Testament, but any other office is open to any of us. When the Lord said, it's not good for man to be alone, I'll make a helper. The word is E-Z-E-R in the Hebrew, and it's pronounced eightzer, kind of like the number eight in a Z-U-R, an eightzer for him. And what's interesting is that word is also used to describe God. In fact, 21 times it's used in the Old Testament, and 16 of them refer to God as Israel's helper in times of trouble. So the fact that you are a completer, a help meet, means that you are a strong warrior. It's actually a military term as well. And we talk about God coming to the help of his people. He is an aidser for his people. He would defeat entire armies for them. So God has put within you as a woman a strong desire to protect, to nurture, and that's a part of what it means to be created in his image as a woman. So you're strong. You have an inner strength that God has given you that's part of what it means to be created in his image. Now, when we think about when Adam and Eve were first created, they were told to do what? To be fruitful and multiply. Now, it takes a man and a woman to bear children. But when you come to the New Testament, we're also supposed to be spiritually fruitful and multiply. It takes men and women to see people born again to be born spiritually, and to come into the family of God. Now, I want to talk with you just a moment about two of my favorite biblical heroes. And it's because both of these women didn't demand to be heard. They weren't seeking a position. They were seeking the Lord. And because they were seeking him, he revealed himself to them, and he gave them positions of prominence. The first one is Deborah. If you've got your Bible, open to Judges chapter 4. In the period of the Judges, 
If you remember the story when God chose Abraham, in fact, I just want to encourage you before I go any further to make a commitment to read through the Bible entirely from Genesis to Revelation. One of the easiest ways to do that, <coughs> excuse me, is it with a one-year chronological Bible. It puts the Bible in order chronologically so that you're not reading something and then a couple days later reading again and thinking, wait, did I just not just read that? Because in First and Second Samuel, you're also going to see that in First and Second Chronicles. It gives you an overview of some of the things you've already seen. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Number, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, all kind of go in order. But when you get into the kingdom, it seems to kind of switch around. And if you read the Bible chronologically, suppose, say, you're reading about King David. It would also give you some of the Psalms that David wrote. And so you're getting to know David a little better by hearing how he was feeling and how he expressed those feelings to the Lord through the Psalms that he wrote. So you're getting to know these people as individuals. You know, none of us would ever take another book, maybe a textbook at school or a novel that you're going to read. Nobody would go two-thirds of the way back and read a page and go a third of the way from the front and read a paragraph and then get frustrated and say, I can't understand this book. You wouldn't do that with anything else. And yet we do that with God's word. The Bible is God's story. History is his story. And it is God's revelation of himself to us who have been created in his image. And in his grace and mercy, he has chosen to write us in to his story. So it's so important that we know him by knowing his word. And as we get to know his story and how he has orchestrated history to fulfill his purpose and plan and his promises, it boosts our faith and it encourages us to get in on what God is doing. That's exactly what happened in the period of the judges. You've got God calling Abraham in Genesis, and Abraham was going to be the one through which the promised one from Genesis 3, the seed of woman who would crush the head of Satan, the first messianic promise, the promise of a savior, came right after Adam and Eve sinned. God chose Abraham and his family to be the lineage through which that promised one would come. And you see as you read the Bible what great lengths God went to to protect that lineage because he was fulfilling his promise. And he told Abraham ahead of time, your people are going to be in Egypt for 400 years. I'll raise up a deliverer. I'll call, I'll call them out, lead them out. I'm giving you this promised land. I'm giving you Canaan. And that's exactly what God did. He raised up Moses, right? You remember the big Exodus story? They're in the wilderness for 40 years. They finally go in and conquer the land under Joshua. And now we get into the period of the judges. They have the promised land, but they didn't fully obey the Lord. They didn't drive out all these pagan nations. And so slowly God's people start looking like and acting like everybody else around them. We're not to look like and act like the world. We're to look like and act like the Lord. And it's very different from the way the world looks and the way the world acts. And if we choose to seek the Lord above all else, not only will he reveal himself to us, but he will use us. And that's exactly what he does in Judges chapter 4. There's a woman and her name is Deborah. And in Judges chapter 4, we see that she is literally a judge. And that would have been a position that we see is primarily 
men that would be raised up to judge Israel. But there's this sin cycle going on in Judges where the people sin and start worshiping pagan idols and God allows one of their enemies to oppress them, to enslave them. And then the people would get tired of that and they would cry out to God for deliverance and God would raise up a judge. And when that judge came to prominence, God would bless his people with peace and they would no longer be oppressed by the the foreign nation. But as happens so often, even in our own life, when things were going well for them and they're prospering again and they're not as desperate for the Lord as they had been, They start coasting and they start looking like everybody else and valuing what everybody else values and they become sinful again. And when that judge would die, guess what? They go right back into living and acting like everybody else around them. And God would allow, once again, an enemy nation to rise up to overpower them and to oppress them until they once again called out to the Lord and asked for deliverance. Well, we have here in chapter 4, During their third captivity, this happens seven, there's seven cycles of this in the book of Judges, over and over. Verse, uh, chapter four, verse one says, then the sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud, their previous judge, died. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. And the commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Harasheth Hagoim. The sons of Israel cried to the Lord, For he had 900 iron chariots, and he oppressed the sons of Israel severely for 20 years. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at that time. She used to sit under the palm tree of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and the sons of Israel came up to her for judgment. Now she sent and summoned Barak, the son of Ahinam, from Kadesh Naphtali, and said to him, Behold, the Lord, the God of Israel, has commanded, Go and march to Mount Tabor, and take with you 10,000 men from the sons of Naphtali and from the sons of Zebulun. I will draw out to you Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his mighty troops to the river Kishon, and I will give him into your hand. Then Barak said to her, If you will go with me, then I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. She said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the honor shall not be yours on the journey that you're about to take, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hands of a woman. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. So what do we have going on here? We have a woman who has such wisdom that she literally has so many people coming to her for judgments and for insight and disputes that she sets up basically under a tree, and they call it the palm tree of Deborah, so that she could execute judgments for the people. She had so much wisdom, and she had that wisdom because she sought the Lord. And I know some of you probably know friends who claim to be Christians, but then you maybe have those one or two friends, or maybe it's someone a little bit older than you that has a real passion for the Lord. It may even be your life group teacher who you know, not only does she talk to God, but God talks to her. (laughs) Those are the kind of people you want to be around. You want to be around people that God talks to, okay? Deborah was one of those people. And so God gives her a message one day to call Barak, the military leader for Israel, and say, God is going to give Sisera, the commander of their oppressing nation, he's going to give him into your hand. We're going to be set free. And what did Barak say? That's awesome. Let's go. No, what did he say? If you go with me, I'll go. (laughs) What does that tell us about the favor God had given Deborah? He said, I know not only do you talk to God, not only are you wise, but God talks to you. God's 
favor is with you. God's hand is on you. And if you go with me, I'll be safe because I know God's going to take care of you. Basically, that's what he was saying. And so Deborah said, okay, I'll go. But God also revealed to her that because he was unwilling to trust the voice of God through Deborah and go, because he had to have her there as his like safety net, it's almost like his good luck charm. He wanted her to go along with him. God was not going to allow him to kill Sisera. He would let that go to the hand of a woman. Well, that's exactly what happened. God fights for the Israelites. He routes Sisera and his army, and Sisera gets away, and he's running. He's fleeing for his life, and there is a tent maker. There's a a Bedouin shepherdess who lures him in. J.L. lures him into her tent because she has been given favor toward the Israelites. She's recognized their God is God. And she lures him in, and she offers him cover, and she offers him some milk, and he goes to sleep, and she kills him with a tent peg. Now, that would have been something that she knew how to do because the women were the ones who pulled down and set up the tents as they traveled. So that was a tool she knew how to use. And she defeated Sisera. God did exactly what he said he would do. And in Judges chapter 5, we have this beautiful song of Deborah just proclaiming the victory of the Lord. Now, Deborah had an understanding that she was simply a vessel through which God worked and flowed. And I want to encourage you to offer yourself to the Lord. Romans 12:1 says that we're to offer ourselves to the Lord as a living sacrifice. That means a burnt offering. That means nothing's held back. It's totally consumed. And that's exactly how we're supposed to love the Lord, isn't it? with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's consumed, being consumed with him. And when we love him like that, we're going to be able to love our neighbors, we love ourselves. But not only that, we're going to learn how to hear his voice. And God will go before you and open doors for you that nobody else is going to be able to close. He'll also close doors he doesn't want you to go through that nobody else can open. If you will just surrender yourself to him, and seek him above all else. Well, the other woman that I really love in the Old Testament, her name is Huldah. Has anybody ever heard of Huldah? I know some of my girls have. I think we've talked about Huldah before. Anybody? Don't feel bad. Anytime I ask anybody this, I was recently at a big discipleship conference thing that I spoke at, and these women are supposed to be really well-versed in the Bible. Not one of them in the room when I asked knew who Huldah was. Let me tell you what, she, she lived during the time of King Josiah. Now, after the period of the judges, that's seven sin cycles, Israel wanted a king. They wanted a king like everybody else had. And God had told Moses there would be a time when the people are going to want a king. He had written about it in the book of Deuteronomy. So they wanted a king, and God gave them Saul. Saul was the people's choice. He was tall, he was good-looking, but he didn't have a heart for God. And after God removed his hand from Saul, he gave them David, King David, through whom the lineage of the Messiah would come, that had a heart after God. But then after David, we have Solomon, who starts out great, but then he allows his heart to be turned away from the Lord. And his son Rehoboam, under him, the kingdom's divided. So then you have a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. And the northern kingdom is taken off into captivity almost 150 years before the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom had 19 kings and all of them were evil, every one of them. They had some amazing prophets like Elijah and Elisha that did amazing miracles. God used them 
mightily. So it wasn't like they didn't have a witness or God was not trying to reach the northern kingdom. He was. They would not listen. They hardened their hearts to God. And so God did exactly what he told them he would do through Moses in Deuteronomy, that if they continued to turn away from him, he would allow someone to take them into captivity. That's exactly what Assyria did to the northern kingdom. And then the southern kingdom would have about 150 more years before they would too be taken captive by Babylon. The reason they lasted longer is because they had six good kings, kings who tried to turn the people's hearts back to God, who would reinstitute the word of God in temple worship. And one of those kings was King Josiah. And you've got on your handout where you can read about King Josiah in the Old Testament. And when they're cleaning out the temple, because they had started using the temple for storage and they had pagan idols in there and they're cleaning it out and the people are bringing their money to the artisans so they can restore the temple. And they found a copy of the word of God, the scroll that Moses had written. Now, can you just imagine how long that thing must have been buried in there? Maybe one of the previous evil kings had had all the copies destroyed, but they found the one in the temple. And they began reading the word of God and all of a sudden they realized, no wonder we've been having so much trouble. We've not been living according to the word of God. And so they take the scroll to King Josiah and they begin to read to King Josiah. And you know what he does? He tears his robes and he's it's a symbol for mourning. And, he's, and he says also, no wonder we've had so much trouble. No wonder the northern kingdom was taken into captivity. God's doing exactly what he said he would do if we rebelled against him, if we forgot him and we lived like everybody else. And so Josiah tells the priest and his assistants, the scribe and a couple of other guys, go get a word from God. Now, you would think as the king, if you told the priest to go get a word from God, that he'd like go back to the temple and pray or something, right? You know what he does? He goes to find Huldah. Huldah's husband was a keeper of the wardrobe, probably a Levite who worked in temple things. But Huldah walked with the Lord. And because she walked with the Lord, God spoke to her. So when they came to her and said, hey, we have found the book of the law and King Josiah said, come get a word from the Lord, and we've come to you. Guess what? God spoke through Huldah and gave them a word for King Josiah, and they went back and delivered that word. And you know what? We never hear another word about Huldah. But do you know what these two women teach me? I was raised as a teenager during the 70s, and I don't know if you guys know a whole lot about just history in America, but the 60s were a huge time of just revolution and feminism. So being raised in the 70s, I could very much have been a feminist, someone who said, basically, I'm female, I'm just as good as you are, and I can do anything you can do, right? That is the idea of the world. But I love Jesus, and I wanted to study his word. And when I get into his word, I realize <clears throat> Jesus himself was humble. Jesus himself came to earth, the king who is better than anybody, <laughs> and came to live among us on a broken planet, to live the life we were designed to live without sin so that he could take our place on the cross. What I've realized is if I'm going to be like my Savior, I need to humble myself and offer myself, like I said earlier, as that living sacrifice to the Lord. And if I will do that and I seek him with all of my heart, he will work in me and through me 
to accomplish his will. And he will open doors for me that I would never have been able to open on my own. I don't have to fight to be heard. I don't have to demand a certain position. If I will seek the Lord and go after him, he will equip me for the purpose and plan he has for my life. And if I'm submitted to him, nobody can stop the king of the universe and his plan as it works out in your life. Nobody can stop him. Which means you're unstoppable if you're surrendered. If you choose to die to yourself and let Jesus Christ literally live through you, my life verse, the verse God gave me when I first became a pastor's wife and felt so inadequate in that role, was Ephesians 3.20. And it says, Now to him who is able to do exceeding abundantly beyond all that you could even ask or imagine, according to his power that dwells within you. He's able. I felt unable as a pastor's wife. I don't have to be able because he's able. And he lives within my physical body through his Holy Spirit. He's able to do what? Exceeding abundantly beyond all that I, not the best you can imagine. God's got a much bigger, better plan for your life than the best you can imagine. It may be completely different from what you've imagined, but he has a better plan for your life. And he does it according to his power, the power of the Holy Spirit that lives within you. It's the same power that created the universe. It's the same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. That power lives within your physical body. But he only works through a surrendered vessel. So as you surrender your life to him and commit yourself fully and completely to him, he takes over and he begins to work. And he also helps you to learn to hear his voice. There's an excellent book <clears throat> by Katie Cole, and I've got it at the bottom of your, of your uh, handout under resources. And her book is Developing Female Leaders. But you need to know what the Bible teaches about our role as women. But the basic two camps, if you will, the two ideas behind this are called either egalitarian or complementarian. An egalitarian would believe that men and women are completely equal and equal in roles. That any role within the church or the home is equally open and available to women just as it is men. A lot of us like the way that sounds. The problem is we can't find it in scripture, okay? There are churches that will tell you they're egalitarian and they will say because we're equal as in Christ there's neither male or female, Jew nor Gentile, we're all equal in Christ, and we are equal in our ability to come to him in prayer. I don't have to go through the priest anymore. You don't have to go through a priest or a pope or anybody else. You go straight to the Father through Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus did that for us when he died on the cross and opened forever, tearing that veil in the temple from top to bottom and opening forever our way into the throne room so as Hebrews 4.16 says, we can come before the throne of grace and mercy to receive help. And we can come with confidence. That literally means with freedom of speech. You're able to come to the Lord at any time with anything because you're in Christ Jesus. I fall under the complementarian understanding of scripture, which means 
God created us male and female. We're equal, yet our roles complement one another. And in the church and in the home, we see the male as leader, whether it's the priest Levite or a pastor elder in the New Testament, but every other office is open to women. In the home, the husband is the leader of the wife and then the children, and it's a direct line of authority. In fact, when you hear the word submission, and some of you may not even really know what's, what it means to submit, it means to line up under, to be under the authority of another. And sometimes that's hard for us as women. And I can remember, you know, I told you guys I was raised with kind of a feministic leaning in my own, my own spirit and soul. And I had to really submit that to the Lord because I understood that if I'm rebelling against what God has commanded in his word, which we'll look at in a moment, some scriptures on marriage, what it talks about submission. And if it causes the hair on the back of your neck to stand up and your spine to stiffen, <laughs> you can know you're having a little bit of trouble with submission, right? But what you have to understand is anytime you submit to someone in authority over you, whether it's like your employer or if you're married, it's a husband or if you're in the church, it's a pastor or elder. If you're having trouble submitting to authority, it's rebellion in your own heart. And you're not rebelling against that person or that office. You're ultimately rebelling against the Lord. And when I choose to submit or line up under the authority God has placed me under, I am saying, Lord, I trust you. I don't always trust that person to make the right decision, but you'll deal with the person. If I'm lined up under you, you're going to protect me because I'm trusting you, not the person. That's putting my faith in Christ and not in another person. I'm trusting him. You know, these gender-specific roles are lived out in the church and home for complementarians. Women are free to lead and hold positions of leadership in the business world uh, or in other organizations. For instance, my husband is the pastor, but he's also my husband in the home, right? So he's my authority in church, but he's also my authority in the home as I line up under the Lord. And then our children under me. If I step out from under that line of authority, I'm out from under God's protection because I'm choosing to rebel. I'm choosing to line up with the enemy of my soul instead of lining up with God's word and his ways and trusting him to work in the midst of it. But I'm also the founder and president of the board of Arise to Read. And when God called me to start that nonprofit ministry, I didn't know at the time that it would be a federally recognized nonprofit or that I would be leading it or that I would be meeting foundations and writing grants to get money from donors to help fund this, to have a staff, and to be able to reach children with literacy and the gospel. I had no idea I was going to do all those things. That's one of those above and beyond all that we could begin to ask or imagine things, right? But God called me. And I can tell you when God calls you to do something, you're not most of the time going to feel comfortable doing it because you're going to think, oh, no, wait a minute. That's, that's too hard to do. That's way above my head. I can remember waking up some mornings and thinking, what am I doing? Like, I have no idea how to write a grant. I don't know how to make a presentation in front of a, you know, million-dollar foundation and ask for money. I, what am I doing? And the Lord would remind me, it's not you. It's the power of the Holy Spirit in you that's doing these. Donna, I called you. I will do this. So in that nonprofit world, I was the authority because God had called me. I was the president of the board, still am, <laughs> the founder of the ministry. And God has opened the door. God has done, I can't even, I could tell you so many God stories of things that God has done that from that first early summer morning in 2012 when God told me, this is your city, 
these are your children. What are you doing about it? Literally, that's what I, not out loud heard, but louder than that in my heart and in my mind. is. And I was praying over the city at the time the Holy Spirit impressed that upon me. This is your city. These are your children. What are you doing about it? And my, I literally out loud responded to the Lord and said, I don't know, Lord. It feels really overwhelming. I don't even know where to start. But I knew immediately, he said, you need to motivate churches to adopt inner city schools and focus on literacy and the gospel. I had just read that summer a book by Wes Stafford, who was the chairman at that time of Compassion International. You familiar with Compassion? If you go to, ever go to a Christian concert, a lot of times you'll hear about Compassion because they get you to sponsor children and you pay $38 a month and you can sponsor literally children around the world and it pray, pays for their education, medical care, basic um, you know, food and basic supplies. You can also do things for their birthday or at Christmas. It's a wonderful Christian organization. I had read this book, Too Small to Ignore, and in that book he said, um, if you want to break the poverty cycle, whether it's in a third world country or the inner city, you take the gospel and education. So do you see how God lines things up? I'd been going in for four years tutoring in Binghampton, working with refugee and inner city children. God had created within me a hunger and a desire to meet the needs of these children, and I realized I'm just working with a very small percentage of children. Lord, there are so many children in this city. We have one of the highest child poverty rates in the entire nation. So that's what was on my heart that morning as I'm praying over the city. And that's when the Lord said, this is your city. These are your children. I had no idea at that point that God would allow us to have a full-time executive director and staff, full-time and part-time, that we would be able to reach over 1,200 students in Shelby County, be in nine states, several foreign countries, and that we would have the president's wife of Uganda invite us to come and train all of her kindergarten through second grade teachers. We were supposed to have been there in September because of COVID we couldn't go. So we're waiting to see what happens and see how that door opens back up. But do you understand? I never thought about any of that when I just said, okay, Lord, yes. You said, this is my city and these are my children. I'm going to take the next step. I'll take the next step and the next step. Because the beauty is God doesn't tell you what you're going to be doing next week or next year, or five years from now, but he gives you enough light to take the next step of faith to whatever it is he's called you to do. And it may be that he's given you a vision for how to reach some of the students on your campus. Maybe he's allowed you to sit beside somebody in one of your classes that's completely lost. Maybe they're an atheist. Maybe they're hostile to Christianity. You know, the first thing you need to do, begin to pray for that person. Begin to pray for them by name. Begin to develop a relationship with them, a friendship. Genuinely seek to get to know them. Ask questions about their life. Serve them in some way. Why? Because they also are created in the image of God with inestimable value. And they are going to spend eternity either in heaven or hell based on what they do with Jesus. God has placed you strategically where you are right now. And he's not asking you to do what I'm doing. He's not asking you to do what anybody else is doing. <laughs> he's asking you to fulfill the purpose and the plan that he has for your life. You know, Jesus only ministered on earth. He didn't start until he was 30. And he only actually ministered about three and a half years. He healed people. He fed people. He raised people from the dead. But you know what? He didn't heal everybody. He didn't raise every widow's son from the dead. He didn't clothe everybody. 
But he was able at the end of that time, just before he went to the cross, to say, I have done everything the Father had for me to do. And I can tell you, ladies, that's my heart's desire. It's when I stand before the Lord, however many more days he gives me, is to know, God, we did it. We did it. Because of your spirit living within me, we accomplished your purpose and plan for my life in the days that you allotted me on this earth. Because you're not your own if you're a believer. You're in Christ. You belong to him. But I can tell you, I've lived with him long enough to know, and I've watched people who've rebelled against him to know, you don't want to be rebelling against God. You want to be right in the middle of what he's doing. And I'm not saying it's always going to be easy. He doesn't promise us that. He says, in this world, you're going to have trouble. But he has overcome the world. We're supposed to rejoice in the fact that he will never leave us nor forsake us. Now, I want to talk to you briefly about marriage, and it's biblically defined, and I want to explain it to you because marriage is a beautiful picture of the gospel. God created marriage from the beginning. When he created Adam and Eve, he instituted marriage knowing God saw the big picture (laughs) before it all even got going. God knew he was going to send Jesus, the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world. And he created marriage to be a picture of the gospel. One man and one woman for life. He said in Genesis 2.24, that's why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. And you enter into a holy covenant. If you know anything about covenants, God has made a covenant with us in Christ. A New Testament covenant was made with Christ through his blood on Calvary. And God will not break that covenant. If you come to him, all you have to do is believe and call on the name of the Lord and you will be saved. That's what the Bible tells us. And God makes a covenant with us, meaning once you get saved, you're given the Holy Spirit, you're sealed, you're protected. God will take you home to be with him one day. You count on that. And in Malachi 2.14, it says, yet you say, for what reason? Because the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth, against whom you have dealt treacherously, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. When you get married and you make vows to a husband for better, for worse, for richer, for poor, in sickness and in health until death parts us, that's a covenant commitment that you were making to your spouse before the Lord. And God is a part of that covenant with your spouse. So Covenant marriage is to be a love and a commitment that's a picture of Christ's love and commitment to us. You know, in the New Testament, the Bible talks about Christ being the bridegroom and the church being the bride. So we have a lot of wedding and marriage imagery in the relationship with Christ and the church. That's why as believers, our marriages are not just about us. And I want to encourage you not to think that you're going to find your soulmate one day, that you're going to find this guy that's going to be able to basically read your mind, and he's going to meet every need you've ever had, and he's going to sweep you off your feet and take you into happily ever after. That's not true. (laughs) There's not a guy on the planet that thinks like you think because God created them very uniquely male, and he created you very uniquely female and part of what happens in marriage is you have two sinners that are very different from each other coming together as one and God uses that marriage relationship as a sanctification tool to chip away at your flesh so that you become more and more like Jesus. There is only one Prince Charming 
And he is going to come one day on a white stallion and he will sweep you off your feet if you're in Christ and he will take you to happily ever after. It's actually written down for us in Revelation chapter 19. He's coming to take you to the marriage supper of the Lamb, to the party of the universe, to a celebration like no celebration you've ever seen. But only, only if you're in Christ. And if you're not, you're going to miss it. But that's why even our marriages, our lives are not our own. Our marriages are not our own. Our marriages are designed to reflect covenant love, the love that Jesus Christ has for the church. Now, if you've got your Bible, turn to Ephesians chapter 5, and we're going to look briefly at this description and command about marriage. He says in verse 22 of Ephesians 5, Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Now, did you get that? We're to submit to our husbands in everything. Husbands, now listen to this, love your wives. Just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory. See, he's presenting his bride, the church, Jesus is to the Father in all of her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife, even as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. So in the marriage relationship, the wife is submissive to her husband, and she's to respect him. Do you know why God commands a wife to respect her husband? Because that's how he's hardwired men to work. It's what he's hardwired them created them to need. So God's commanding of us as wives to give our husbands what he's created them to need. But he's also commanding them to give us what we need. He's commanding them to love us, to treasure us, to cherish us like they love their own body. Now, you know what? It's pretty easy to submit to somebody who's loving you like that, right? That's why it's so important that you marry a believer that you never date anybody that's not a believer. Because if you date someone, you're setting yourself up to fall in love with someone who's not a believer. And when I talk to, especially college-age girls, I'll tell them sometimes, you, the Bible says we're to seek the Lord with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's your entire being. You're, you're passionately pursuing Jesus Christ. You're going after him. And the Bible says if you seek him with all of your heart, he'll be found by you. So as you go after the Lord Jesus Christ, you can look to the right or the left, and if there's a guy pursuing Christ with a same passion you are, you can pray about going out with them. But if they're back here, if you've got to turn around to find them, they're not a candidate, okay? That is not somebody that you're going to be able to love and serve the Lord Jesus Christ with. You, can, you don't want to be dragging somebody through life or them dragging you down. God has a purpose and a plan for your life. And you know what? Part of that purpose and plan may be to be single. Maybe single for a while. It may be to be single your entire life. I don't know. 
Paul said he chose singleness so that he would not be distracted because there was such a passionate call on his life to pursue Christ and to plant churches. He was passionate about taking the gospel to places where people had never heard. And it may be that God calls some of us to singleness. Then Jesus becomes your husband. And he will never leave any of us or forsake us. Marriage is not going to answer every dream you've ever had. And I know I used to think the same thing, thinking you're going to find this soulmate out there. You know what? You may find a really great guy, but he's really not going to be your soulmate. Only Jesus is. Only Jesus knows you inwardly. He knows you better than you know yourself. In fact, it's only in Christ that we're genuinely loved and eternally significant. And those are everybody's two primary needs. Whether it's a Christian psychologist or a secular psychologist, they'll tell you, all of humanity, you know what we all want? We want to be loved, and we want our lives to count. We want our lives to have purpose. Well, you will find that in your relationship with Jesus Christ, and you will find it nowhere else. So I want to encourage you to be biblical women. I want to encourage you to go hard after the Lord. I want to encourage you to know his word. Be able to tell his story from Genesis to Revelation. Understand, see how God has orchestrated history to fulfill his purposes and his promises. It will boost your faith like nothing else. There is an excellent book on marriage um, called The Meaning of Marriage by Tim Keller. And in it, he says, marriage is a picture of the gospel. That's what Paul was talking about in this Ephesians passage. And he says it's really a mystery. He said it's to reflect the relationship Christ has with the church, his bride. If God had the gospel of Jesus' salvation in mind, even when he established marriage, then marriage only works to the degree that approximates the pattern of God's self-giving love in Christ. Start here, Paul says. Do for your spouse what God did for you in Jesus, and the rest will follow. This is the secret, that the gospel of Jesus and marriage explain one another. That when God invented marriage, he already had the saving work of Jesus in mind. So marriage is a picture of the gospel. And if God calls you to be married, then you make sure you marry somebody who's passionately pursuing Jesus Christ. If God calls you to singleness, know that he will be the best husband you could have ever had. And he will fulfill his purposes and plans in you. And that he is really faithful and trustworthy. You can surrender your life to him right now. And I can promise you something. It takes all the pressure off. Because you don't have to be the right place at the right time. You don't have to be a certain kind of person. You don't have to manipulate anything. You just surrender to Jesus. Go hard after him and watch him go before you and order your steps and orchestrate his plan for your life. And I promise you, it will be exceeding abundantly beyond anything you could have asked or imagined.